Hi, I'm Dr. Hillary McBride. Normally, therapy sessions are totally confidential, but in other people's problems, I open the doors to let you hear sessions with my long-standing clients. This is what people sound like when they talk with someone they trust about healing addiction, parenting stress, racist ideologies in the family, and other topics that feel so timely as we come through this difficult time. Other People's Problems, available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I would say in the 90s. If you was born in 1999, you're considered old. 92? 91? 90? You're in that age where you're kind of old. <laughs> you don't have to spend much time on TikTok before you'll notice something a little perverse. People who are 25, 26, 27 years old are routinely being described as old. And this observation is most often directed at women. Journalist Jessica Defino says framing other people as old when they have just a handful of years on you is a way of keeping your own fear of aging at a distance. I think social media really lends itself to the project of anti-aging or the goal of anti-aging because on some level, what is anti-aging if not becoming this static, non-living version of yourself, really? You know, aging is another word for living. While some are in a state of frantic denial of aging on social media, denying their own mortality, others are staring it down. Hadley Vlahos is known as Nurse Hadley. She has 1.7 million followers on TikTok, where she's very open about her work and what happens in hospice care. When I first got started on TikTok, I just said that I was a nurse because I know how people normally react. And eventually people were asking enough, what kind of nurse are you, that I couldn't ignore it. And I posted it and remembered thinking, I don't think anyone cares and people are gonna think I'm weird. And I think that video got 200,000 views of people saying, please tell me, I had a loved one in hospice or my dad was in hospice, please, I wanna hear them. And I just started sharing stories. This calling, being a hospice nurse, not only changed Vlahos' life, it made her rethink what she believes about what happens after you die. Later this hour, Stephen Gray, a filmmaker from Winnipeg, also found himself questioning what happens when you die, so he decided to ask the people who say they've been there. Gray's film, After Death, tells the story of near-death experiences. But when it comes to the big questions of life and death, Stephen Gray discovered it is the little things that really matter. The takeaway from a lot of these experiences is, especially in their life review, it's like how small decisions and big decisions actually have a ripple effect on other people. You know, holding the door open for someone or uh, paying it forward and buying a coffee for someone, let's say in, in a line, or even something as small as just, you know, smiling uh, to someone. That kind of stuff, as small and insignificant as it might seem, actually had um, really profound impacts because you don't know where that's going to meet someone. Filmmaker Stephen Gray, a little later on Tapestry. I'm Mary Hines. The generation gap is nothing new. If you're of a certain age, you might remember the saying, never trust anyone over 30. 
But while the gulf between generations is as big as it ever was, the age gap separating the perceived young versus old seems to be shrinking. What's going on when people in their late 20s are being cast as the old ones by human beings just a few years younger? What's driving ageism on TikTok? Here's producer Arman Igbali on what's behind the pressure to remain forever young. How old would you say is old? Are you old at 50? That feels wrong to me. But what about 65 or 80? Whatever that number is in your head, I'm sure it isn't 27. Something that still really blows my mind is the rampant ageism that I see on this app every day. And the fact that a lot of times it comes from people who are not that much younger than you. What are you gonna do when you're 27, 28, 29, 30? you're gonna have a nervous breakdown. And I warn you, if you tie a lot of your self-worth and identity to the fact that you are in your early 20s, you're going to have a very hard time transitioning in life. This is not an uncommon kind of TikTok video. Someone in their late 20s, early 30s, being amazed at being called old. Kelsey Laurier started noticing the comments in her videos in 2021 when one video in particular struck a nerve. I got a lot of hate comments of people calling me old and washed up and it was coming from men and women and I think um, it was just really interesting because at first I was like, I'm not old, am I? And then I kind of went down a TikTok rabbit hole of uh, seeing just like how Gen Z thinks of age and kind of getting the idea that um, a lot of people do think that anything above the age of 25 is actually old, and I was quite shocked by that. Kelsey, for the record, is 30, and she found plenty of other people on TikTok complaining about the same thing, being called old at a traditionally young age. How old am I? Oh, um, scariest thing about being 25 is how people treat you like you're a senior citizen. When I told y'all that I was 25 years old, y'all called me a middle-aged man. I'm not resonating with this tomfoolery, dog. So why does TikTok feel ripe for ageism? Well, the platform is unique in a couple ways. First, TikTokers tend to be young. In 2021, just under 60% of their users were under 25. And that can change the kinds of interactions on the app. Kelsey put it this way. I think like when I was younger, you know, we had MySpace, Facebook, and everyone wasn't on there. Like it really was more for like college kids, high school kids, or, you know, middle schoolers. Like you had your own insulated places on the internet. TikTok is so popular. Everyone is on there, young, old, middle-aged. And I think it's just like, teenagers coming across people who are much older than them and otherwise when are they really around people who are that much older you know you're in school maybe your parents or their friends but I think it's just being on the internet being around seeing people who are much older than you having the ability to leave anonymous hate comments as well you know I think emboldens that type of narrative but it's also the nature of what you're seeing on these apps beautiful people in a singular moment in time. It really strikes me that on social media, we are showing these sort of, these images of ourselves, these static images. We're, we're capturing ourselves in a, 
a frozen moment in time. And a lot of what anti-aging is about is is freezing ourselves in time at this this idealized moment. That's Jessica DeFino. She's a journalist who writes about the beauty industry and in particular, anti-aging products. And while she's skeptical that TikTok is radically different from the platforms that came before it, she believes it can reinforce certain beauty standards. I think in the beauty industry in particular, the line between being young and being old is probably around 25 um, in your in your early to mid-20s is sort of that dividing line between a young person and an old person who needs to start thinking about looking younger. I think especially right now, there is an eerie sort of agelessness that has permeated everything from social media to the news media to movies to celebrities and musicians that we like as a culture idealize you know I'm thinking of someone like Kylie Jenner who is in her early 20s versus like a real housewife of New York who's in their 50s and they sort of look the same age and I think it's that like eerie ageless look and if you think 25 is the oldest we should be that can be big business Anti-aging is a roughly $37 billion industry, and Jessica says it's attracting younger and younger people. Um, Experts are saying that we're in the midst of a Botox boom. More people than ever are getting Botox, getting fillers, and even getting more invasive surgeries like facelifts and um, eye eye lifts. So the anti-aging marketing is working. We are buying into it, and we're buying into it younger and younger I think social media really lends itself to the project of anti-aging or the goal of anti-aging because on some level, what is anti-aging if not becoming this static, non-living version of yourself really? You know, aging is another word for living. And that sort of is the promise of anti-aging as well. Like often what you'll hear in marketing for things like Botox or Zeoman, or even facelifts and surgeries, is this idea of feeling like yourself again. And it's positioning the self as this idealized person version of you from the past that doesn't exist anymore. And so it sort of creates this idea that in order to be the authentic, real you, you need to consume your way into that. You need to backtrack. You need to erase for so much of my life, I was so devoted to beauty. I was obsessed with beauty and becoming more beautiful and consuming all of the products and doing everything I could do to be the the most beautiful me I could be. And after working in the beauty industry for years and realizing that I didn't feel good in my body, like none of these products that had promised to make me feel good and make me feel better actually delivered on that, I was anxious. I was depressed. I was consumed with thoughts of my own face and my own body. And it was impacting me to the point that I was living less life. I was canceling plans. I wasn't going out on dates. I was staying home in my apartment by myself. And I feel really lucky that I had this breakthrough moment where I realized my obsession with beauty was lowering my quality of life, and I was having fewer experiences and meeting fewer people because of it. 
my sister is seven years younger than me, and we kind of have the same face. We look very similar. And I remember a couple of months ago, I had succumbed to some of this anti-aging pressure that I experience in my work day to day. And I was saying to her that, you know, I felt old and I felt ugly. And she stopped me and she was like, please don't say this because in seven years, I'm going to look like you and I don't want to feel anxious about this. Jessica's sister isn't alone in that feeling. Here's Kelsey again. I remember when I was like 25, I was a little bit nervous around turning that age because I had those same feelings of like, oh my gosh, I don't have my life together. It's all over from here. But once I turned 30, I didn't feel that way. I actually felt very grateful um, because aging really is a privilege and everybody doesn't get to, to do it. We've heard a lot about how social media can warp our thinking, but there actually is an opportunity here. What if you saw those older faces and thought, this is beautiful too? One of the bigger reasons why I started to become more optimistic about aging because I see so many of like other content creators who, you know, I'm mutuals with who are maybe five or 10 or even 15 years older than me. And I admire them and I look up to them and I see how they live their lives. And, you know, some of them have kids, some of them don't, some of them are married, some of them aren't, you know, and it's just like, oh, like, I mean, there's no way I could look this way for the rest of my life. And I wouldn't even desire that because it's not realistic. And I, I see myself aging gracefully. All the women in my family are beautiful and they aged really, you know, gracefully as well. So I'm not worried about myself. That was from producer Arman Bali. Special thanks to Ashton Applewhite and Alex Copeland. When I tell you Hadley Vlahos is a hospice nurse, what's the first thing that runs through your mind? Something along the lines of, that must be the saddest job in the world. Funny thing, but the woman known as Nurse Hadley online says her work is the most life-giving thing she can imagine. Here's Nurse Hadley on finding meaning and beauty at the end. People can be very uncomfortable whenever I say that I'm a hospice nurse. The most common comment I get is, oh, that's so depressing. I could never do that. that I would be so depressed. And the fact is, I'm actually one of the happiest people I know. I love my job. My name's Hadley Vlahos. I'm a registered nurse and a content creator. Hospice nurses care for patients who have six months or less to live. It can be longer, it can be less, but these are patients who are deciding to not do any treatment anymore. So they just want to stay at their home and they want to be comfortable. So the big difference between us and a hospital nurse is that we go to patients' homes. Before I became Nurse Hadley, I was a young single mom and I was really trying to find my place in the world and I was looking just to everyone else for their beliefs about the world and how we should live in it. And I was pretty lost, to be honest. I didn't know what to believe about the afterlife, about how to live a good life. And I am fortunate enough to have gotten a lot of direction from my hospice patients. 
I had a patient named Carl that did not want hospice care at all at first. He was just wanted to be left alone and to watch his football and not be bothered by us coming to his house. I tried to make connections with him and he started writing down uh, news for me, sports news and regular news because he learned that I was a single mom and I never knew what was going on. So it started by just telling me about what was going on and that progressed to writing notes for me because he would forget sometimes what he wanted to tell me. So every time I showed up for a visit, he would have these notes for me that told me what was going on in the world. This was just something that had progressed over time. And then right before he died, he told me, thank you for giving me something to look forward to instead of death. And I had not even realized what I was doing by us exchanging these notes and him having kind of like a little job. And from that moment on, I was like, I never want to ever do any other type of job. Another day learning how to live from the dying. Well, sometimes I say that and then I wonder if I should because aren't all patients dying? Because aren't we all dying? Technically, everyone's dying. It's not an if, it's a when. I found this community on social media of people who were really interested in death and it still surprises me to this day that there are all these people interested in it. When I first got started on TikTok, I just said that I was a nurse because I know how people normally react. And eventually people were asking enough, what kind of nurse are you that I couldn't ignore it. And I remember making this video and saying, I am a hospice nurse. I actually think that I have some really cool stories. Does anyone want to hear them? And I posted it and remembered thinking, I don't think anyone cares and people are gonna think I'm weird. And I think that video got 200,000 views of people saying, please tell me I had a loved one in hospice or my dad was in hospice, please, I wanna hear them. And I just started sharing stories. A lot of people think my job is death all the time, but it's really not. Today, I got to help my patient feed his goats. Most of the time, I'm just talking to my patients, learning more about them, and figuring out how we can make the last days of their life as comfortable and happy as possible. I would love to know what questions you have about being a hospice nurse. I started out my storytelling just talking to the camera, and as that progressed, I realized that I was putting people into my shoes of what I'm seeing. And I also realized that at times, people didn't really understand what exactly I was talking about uh, because they had never been in a situation where you're in a room with a hospice patient. So from there, I started doing skits where I would show people this is what it looks like when you're the hospice patient this is what it looks like whenever you're the caregiver or the nurse hey i'm happily your hospice nurse i do not see what the point of view is mom you know she's here so you don't have to go to the hospital anymore please be nice any ideas on how much longer she has i think it could be within the next few days okay um i just call you when she dies right yeah just call the office number thank you for caring for my baby of course, Zach told me how much it meant to him that you quit your job to care for him and also that you are the world's best pancake maker. You are an amazing mom and you did such a good job. I think it has really helped people understand and visualize what it is like whenever you're in those rooms. And occasionally it is very hard for me to make these skits because I remember what it was like to actually be in those rooms. 
There's one video in particular that really surprised me, which was I talked about estranged loved ones in hospice care. I thought that that was going to be a video that only reached a small percentage of my community, but it was going to mean a lot to them because we don't really talk about that very much in our culture. And I basically said, if you are the type of person who continues to be no contact with your dying family member, even after I as the hospice nurse call you and say that that is their final dying wish to talk to you, then I think that's totally fine. I don't judge you and I don't think you owe people who abused you peace. It is okay if you don't want to go see your loved one when they're on hospice care. We're not going to force you and we, we understand. We get it. It reached millions of people. Millions of people said that they related and I was shocked. I grew up in a home where death was pretty normal because my grandparents were funeral directors. They still are. My kids know whenever mommy gets a call and she's on call and someone died, we said, oh, someone died. I'm going to go take care of them. And my 10-year-old knows a little bit more of the semantics of what that looks like. But our younger kids, like my three-year-old, we use simpler phrases like we get flowers every week. And whenever we're throwing away the flowers, we say the flowers are dead. And then whenever we get new flowers, we'll get a different kind of flower to show that whenever things die, it doesn't mean that you can just replace them that's kind of how we we teach them but we don't avoid those words there are many patients who have made me rethink my course in life i would say the most influential one was who i call elizabeth and that is because she was a younger patient who was dying of cancer for a completely unknown reason and she shared with me that she had spent too much of her life on the treadmill and just obsessively counting calories and really caring about her image. And in return, she was not spending time with her friends or building relationships or enjoying life. And that really caused me to examine my own life, my own eating habits, how I was spending my time. And I completely changed because of her in that conversation. And unfortunately, Elizabeth died alone, but her words have resonated with millions of people. I cannot count the amount of eat the cake tattoos I have been sent. It's very difficult whenever patients are your age, around your age or younger. It, I don't think it'll ever really fully make sense, even though our brains will always try to make sense of it, uh, to try to have some rational reasoning. Our chaplain one time said to me, if the purpose of being here is to accomplish some goal, then people who are dying younger were just accomplishing their goals earlier. and. It has helped me to think of my patients in a way of accomplished humans that are great humans. It was hard for me at first to get out of that black and white thinking of the world is this way or it's that way and there's no in between. But for me, I have come to accept that there are things that we will just never be able to explain. 
At the end of patients' lives, they can experience three things that I consider to be medical mysteries. Patients, usually in the last few days to weeks of their lives sometimes, will say that they see their deceased loved ones. And they're coming and they say that they're going on a trip or they're coming to talk to them. And it's always very comforting for my patients. And no matter their religious background or any kind of characteristic they have, they all see the same thing, which is their deceased loved ones. And it's very beautiful to be able to sit with people in that moment and get to experience that with them. I never get tired of it. I always am just like, oh good, I'm I'm glad your husband is coming to get you. I'm glad that you're comforted by that and happy. Another is called the surge of energy. We also can't explain this, which is where patients who are, for example, bed bound will all of a sudden get up and they can walk again. We have no idea why. Or a smaller instance would be someone who has been sleeping for a few days will wake up and talk to people and reminisce. And some of the more beautiful ones are patients with dementia who will have memories for a short time again and be able to talk to their loved ones, which is beautiful. And the last one is that people seem to be able to choose their time of death, which I always say is so interesting because we can't even choose what time we go to sleep at night. Like if I said I want to go to sleep right now, I could not. But people seem to be able to do it down to the second. And whenever I say that, I also tell people that people will wait for people to get there. I've seen that time and time again. But there's also some people that seem to wait until they're alone. And usually that correlates with certain personalities where some people would just prefer to be alone when they die, whereas others want people around them. But I have seen just as many times people wait for someone to get there as someone waits till someone goes to the bathroom for a second. Do you have any spiritual concerns? I'm scared of what comes next, but I don't think that's anything you can help with. I don't think anything happens after we die. I used to be scared of what comes after death too. Used to, huh? What changed? This changed it. Taking care of people like you, witnessing people, seeing their deceased loved ones, seeing their fears washed away before they passed, and coincidences. I mean, one or two coincidences are just coincidences, but hundreds? I I just don't think that's a coincidence anymore. Hospice work has definitely changed my views around spirituality and religion. I was raised in a religious household, and then I had an incident when I was in high school where I lost a friend, and I didn't have too much of an understanding of how that works in your life, how you're supposed to make sense of losing someone that's your age. So I did struggle with that. I really lost that religious space and I felt very lost and then I interned in the ER and really saw what I consider to be the true horrors of the world and all of these nurses were like I don't think that there's any possibility of there being a loving being that would allow these things to happen and that made rational sense in my mind so I stopped believing in anything and now since I've worked in hospice I have come to say, well, there's things that I don't think that science and medicine can explain. These, all these beautiful instances that are happening. 
I really wanted to be able to explain it at first, which I think goes back to that medical training where there is always an answer for everything. But I have actually found my peace in saying, one day I will know, one day I'm also gonna die and I think that I'll get the answers then. But there is no need to just explain everything away. I think that it is okay to just say that we don't have all of the answers, but because of the things that I've witnessed, I do have a feeling that there is something beyond this life. And what really convinced me is that it's not just my stories and what I experience, but it's every hospice nurse. Every hospice nurse can tell you stories just like mine. I didn't know why people were so drawn to my videos at first. I think I've made sense of it more recently. My husband actually is the one who pointed it out. And he said, why I think people like your videos so much is whenever they can share their own story in your comments, whenever they relate to it and they can say, this is my story. And he said, it doesn't even matter if you see it or you respond, other people start responding to each other. And other people say, oh, your dad went through that. My dad went through that too and they're able to connect with each other. They feel seen, they feel heard, and they feel like they're not alone. I am still pretty young in my career. I think about that a lot, how many patients I'm gonna take care of and at what point I will be taken care of by a hospice nurse potentially. And I try not to look too far ahead but I can say that I want to really make a lot of changes in our healthcare system and in hospice care, and I feel very positive about those changes. I think hospice care is wonderful, and I think that there is so much more we can also do to just make the end even better. Hadley Vlahos is a hospice nurse and the author of The In-Between, Unforgettable Encounters During Life's Final Moments. This is Tapestry, keeping you company and helping you make sense of the world. You'll find us online at cbc.ca, on the CBC Listen app, on Spotify, on Sirius XM Satellite Radio, and on CBC Radio 1. I'm Mary Hines. Filmmaker Stephen Gray grew up in Winnipeg. He was raised as a Christian. But when tragedy hit close to home, Gray found himself in deep despair, wondering whether life was even worth living. He began to investigate stories describing what are known as near-death experiences, hoping for some answers. The result is his documentary called After Death. Here's Stephen Gray with his producer, Jason Pamer, on how making that film has shaped their own beliefs. I got interested in near-death experiences after going through personal loss. I'm Stephen Gray, director and producer of After Death. So back in 2012, my brother-in-law, Marco, was actually killed by a drunk driver. And um, I mean, I've been a filmmaker for something like 15 years now, but at that point, 
um, it really kind of, you know, stopped me in my tracks and uh, caused me to kind of ask questions about, you know, the afterlife and the reality of, of heaven or is it a fantasy? And so I was raised to, you know, to believe in, in God and heaven. And um, but honestly, at that point, I think my, my faith was was challenged in a way that, you know, nothing else had before. And as a filmmaker, more in the commercial space uh, prior to this, um, I just I thought, you know, what am I doing with my, my life? You know, I'm 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 out there kind of selling products and brands and stuff like that. And it was all really cool, exciting work. But there was nothing that um, had, you know, the same amount of purpose that that this film ended up becoming. I wanted to see if there was really something out there. And so that's when um, some people had recommended uh, books of people who had apparently had died, had an experience, and then came back to talk about it. And um, it caught my attention, but I was still kind of skeptical in the beginning. I didn't really think, you know, I mean, it's in a book, right? So I wasn't sure how much editing there was. And, and you know, I'm not interviewing these people myself. And as a filmmaker, again, with, you know, a little bit more of a documentary background, I was always interested in the people behind the product. And so the same way with the books, I want to know from the authors, you know, how much is edited and how much of this story is real? You know, it's it's pretty amazing, pretty spectacular in, in writing. But, um, yeah, I wanted to hear from the from the people myself. My wife and I, um, there was a night where, you know, shortly after the crash, we, we were both just, um, well, beyond depressed. And honestly, I, I just was like, what, what's the point of living? My wife and I went for a walk, I think around midnight. We don't do this, it's very unusual. Um, my wife, you know, she's the first to go to bed early and, and first to wake up. <laughs> so midnight is unusual. And, but we were just, you know, both restless went for uh, a walk around midnight and um you know we both honestly were thinking of just like i don't know really depressed it's like what what the heck is the point of even going on and uh we both just like vocalized you know like god like if you're real and marco like i don't know where you are but like we need to know <laughs> like where are you it's like god give me a sign I want to say it was like probably like five minutes later, we're walking far and we're just like, well, what are we doing? <laughs> this is stupid. And um, we just decided to, okay, let's just go back home. Suddenly there was a, there was a bus stop bench that w was lit up under um, a like a street lamp. And we both just glanced at the exact same time. And all it had on it was just like blue um, painting on the, on the bench. And it just had this, uh, it was actually scripture. And it, it just said, you know, cast your cares upon me, for my my burden is is light and um like my wife and i were like what like we started laughing because this is stupid this is ridiculous I, I asked for a sign and like i literally get a sign this is stupid <laughs> but then also we kind of like we're laughing because it's like marco was he's a jokester like this is this is actually hilarious and he would totally do something ridiculous like this and it had some little um, like number at the bottom. Like if you get really close, there's like a number where to call. And so we wrote it down. And uh, actually my mother-in-law called. I think it was like the next day because she couldn't believe the story. And it turns out it came from like a, a church across the other side of the city. There was this priest or pastor. And I'm not even sure the denomination of the church it was. 
and he was just like, "Oh wow, I'm where was this? You know, where was this? Because um, you know, it's the weirdest thing. We just felt as a church this ne- message needed to go out there, and we don't know why, but we did it. But the unfortunate thing is we had a very limited budget, and so with a higher tier, we'd be able to pick where it goes. The lower tier, you can't pick where it goes. It just goes, and we could afford, I think, three bus stops or something, and that was one of them. And so they were wondering where <laughs> he ended up. And um, so they had no control of where it goes and it just happened to be right at that time. And also it was only around for a week. Like it had to be very specific about when I saw that sign, right? I, like Steve, had grown up um, in, a, in a house of faith. And so I didn't question if there was an afterlife. But if you would have asked me at the same time, do you believe this person's story of seeing heaven coming back? I'd have been like, oh, well, that's probably not real. But heaven for sure is real. My name is Jason Pamer. I am producer of After Death and owner of Cypher Studios. You know, it doesn't take much searching uh, the news today to, to see all of the despair and uh, the pain that's around. And I think that there's an opportunity in these moments, particularly, to find partnership in, in your fellow human. And I mean, Steve and I and Jens and, and a much broader team had that. And, you know, you need that to make a film. I mean, it took five over five years for us and steve had already been working on it for a couple years before that so i heard a voice before i woke up you still have a purpose on earth i was very skeptical i never felt alive and then dead i felt alive and then more alive in the stories in the film after death we interviewed something like 14 different people who made it you know on camera in in the final cut who died anywhere between 30 seconds to, you know, an hour and 45 minutes. So, you know, quite a span of time, but an hour and 45 minutes is also a very long time to be dead and come back. Um, And uh, I would say the really surprising thing was, you know, we're interviewing people um, from different cultures, different backgrounds, from different places around the world. And the things that they're talking about and articulating as best they can and and describing, um, they seem to overlap. I mean, they almost perfectly overlap. There's definitely differences in, in their experiences, but it's almost like they're all getting a taste of, of what comes next. In some, in some cases, you know, there's language barriers and, and not everyone in the film, you know, their native language is, is English. But they would say that um, even people who knew multiple languages, there's not a language here on earth is how they feel that can describe what they saw, what they experienced because many of them talk about um, they step into a different dimension. So uh, at basically at the, at the point of death, um, they're, they're hopping into a place that is outside of time. Um, Mary Neal, who's in the film, she, she wrote the book, uh, New York Times bestseller, To Heaven and Back. And she talks about her experience uh, was, was uh, not linear. It was all at once. It just existed. She had drowned. Uh, she was without oxygen for 30 minutes. So then she's, you know, floating up. And yet she also at the same time sees this beautiful pathway that opens up. And it's filled with um, flowers and colors and, and trees and nature around this path that's leading towards what she would describe as heaven. And it wasn't like this place that's so far away that we have to travel to to get there. It's like this gateway opened right at the scene where the accident was. But at the same time, again, she can look back and, and continue to see the, the rescue operation. I was immediately enveloped with this 
absolute physical sensation of being held and comforted and reassured. Reassured that everything would be fine. My husband would be fine, my children would be fine, regardless of whether I lived or died. Here we have senses, you know, like touch, uh, taste, feel, all that kind of stuff. There they talk about, you know, something like 50 senses. And also senses are experienced in a different way. So um, the sounds of heaven, for example, it's like your your body actually uh, is like almost like a tuning fork in that in that environment. So the sounds and the music reverberate through you and that you're actually, you become a part of it. A lot of these people, I think there's three or four people in the film that even describe this same commonality of something like 360 degree vision. So they can see around themselves, top and bottom, left and right, back, everything, all at once. They talk about how they can see um, really far away, um, almost like, like a zoomed um, perspective, while at the same time wide and seeing everything around them and not having to focus on one or the other. It's unbelievable, yeah. Like Dr. Raymond Moody even talks about, you know, he's, he's the guy who coined the term near-death experience. He wrote the book uh, Life After Life, and he, he talks about, you know, he, he went around the world and he's been studying this, you know, since like the 70s. And, and uh, he talks about how, you know, commonly um, people, people describe, uh, basically, it's like, you know, you know, a sleep state and, and, and your wake state, you know, and it's like, you know, when, if you have dreams, let's say, and some, some dreams may feel more real than others, but you still kind of know that was a dream, you know. But they say that this, after having that experience after death, and coming back, it feels like life on earth here is sleep in comparison to that life there. So it's actually like that life is more real there than this life. One of the most emotional interviews in the film is Howard's story. When he uh, died, he was immediately met with um, ominous figures and, and darkness and eventual isolation and destruction. And it was in that moment of utter isolation and destruction where he, you know, he cries out and there is this being of light that races through the cosmos to, to rescue him and rip him up from this destruction. That was incredible. I mean, Steve Kang, who's in the film, he, he, he grew up Buddhist, also had an experience with darkness and isolation. And Paulo Haida is another person in our film who was not met immediately with the being of light, and yet the being of light, in many of these instances, was the one to rescue them from it, was to pull them out of it. And it's one of the reasons why we wanted to cover both types of stories in our film. I mean, 23% of all reported NDEs are hellish experiences. That number is probably higher, but it's people don't really want to report that. You know, it's riddled with a lot of shame. So we, we give a lot of honor to the people that were willing to come into our film and share these really dark and painful i mean these aren't just like oh it was a hard time this is like and i don't want to get too explicit on this program but it's like the worst you could possibly imagine i saw a black tunnel i was just falling i wasn't in fear i was in terror it was just darkness put me back i don't belong here you know, sharing that and what the potential inference about the life that was lived leading up to that or the choices in life. And so I think, you know, people don't want to share that. And, and these people did uh, bravely share. Jason and I, we, we had the, 
you know, privilege of, of talking to many people again from around around the world. There's there's a lot of interviews that we did over like Zoom calls and stuff that you know didn't make the final cut only because for the sake of time. But there are several people that we include in the film in in segments that you don't know their backstory necessarily. But um, yeah, there's there's I think two or three people that we interviewed from India. There was I think two of them who were Hindu. One was an atheist. Um, there was a lady that we talked to in Israel, actually. She didn't believe anything, although her, uh, I think it was her mother who was devout you know, in, in, in that faith. We did end up talking to uh, a gentleman in, uh, I think it was in Iraq, and uh, again, came from a Muslim background. Um, the thing that's interesting, I think, for us was there is a universal kind of overlapping nature to these experiences. And in many cases, um, uh, their culture or their religion or their background or wherever they were from, whether, even North America, net, like what they were raised to believe isn't necessarily what they had. We weren't hearing um, stories of of people seeing, you know, their, their deities in, in other religions, let's say. I We didn't come across that. Um, I would say t- more typically, you know, people from other uh, religions and backgrounds, they wouldn't necessarily say, you know, I met Jesus. But they would describe, you know, uh, seeing a man of light um, who is, they would say, like a thousand burning suns, a thousand burning suns. And um, I mean, that's <laughs> that's crazy, right? And they would say that I think if they were standing before this being, this man of light uh, in the flesh, they would be incinerated. And it's, you know, it'd be terrifying. And yet in that experience, it's not terrifying. It's absolutely the opposite. It's, it's nothing but love and it's unconditional love. And the word love is something, you know, again, in English, we, we have one word for it. It's a bit silly. In other languages, there's multiple words for it. But love uh, experienced there is profoundly different than the love that we experience here. So, again, in English, one word, I could say, hey, I love this jacket. <laughs> or I love my wife. Those are two very different things, right? But um, but even, you know, the, the relationships with people that we have here on Earth, you know, as much as you want to say that's unconditional, there's there's always a level of, you know, Nothing is unconditional here on earth, and yet there it is unconditional. And it feels actually to each one of them as if the creator of the universe loves them and only them. Like that, it's that, you know, individual and specific. And, and what they walk away from, and what they take away from is that this being seems to want, you know, loves me and wants a relationship with me, like I, to have a connection with God. And so they're, they're seeking that after their experience. Tip, more often than not, I mean, there's three atheists in our film. Our, our primary character is, is Howard, and he's a university professor, very serious atheist, and that he has this experience that transforms the rest of his life. It's kind of the craziest story because he ends up becoming a pastor. Like, it's such a transformation that it's actually, um, it doesn't end up, you know, perfect for him. So he takes a 90% pay cut from the job that he had as a university professor to becoming, you know, almost a volunteer pastor. Um, But he risked losing everything. So his wife walked away from him. His kids left him. They they called him crazy. But this is so serious and so real to him that he's willing to, to lose that, lose everything. How could that experience be fake if someone's willing to go basically to death that, that, that it was that serious, right? That much of a transformation. So, I th- yeah, I think it's profound. I think that was one of the things that was um, convincing was that folks came back and it, it, it actually ruined their world in many ways for them to hold to the experience and stories that they encountered with their near-death experience. 
I mean, Howard's, you know, wife ended up leaving him, kind of turned the kids against him. Uh, he's, he's since reconnected a little bit with the kids, but you know, people think you're crazy, even those closest to you. So, um, that, that was one thing that was like, Oh, it wasn't a clear, um, advantage to them to come back and start talking about it. I mean, Don waited 15 years before writing about it after he came back, Don Piper. So that, that was one thing that was, um, was super interesting to me was that these people actually didn't have a lot to gain. Cause I think from the outside perspective, it's like, Oh, there's just the ability to profit. And I do believe that there are people that have, you know, written books or shared their stories with that motive. But the ones in this film were heavily, heavily vetted. Steve did a phenomenal job over multiple years to make sure that the people in this film, uh, both, you know, medically and clinically, there was as much documentation as possible. It was as verifiable as possible. They died. And then these sort of stories of coming back and sharing their experiences, you know, these people did not have much to gain. And in fact, they had a lot to lose. I was going to say one, one thing to, to point out um, in terms of the distressing experiences. Um, in contrast to what people are describing, you know, in this heavenly realm, um, so they talk about this place that they go to, and, and three out of the people that are in our film uh, that had these experiences talk about entering this uh, place that is void of light. And so they, they, they talk about, it's like, it's not like the stars are out and, and the sun's out here. And there's no street lights, you know, at nighttime. It's not like the lights are shut off or you're in a room. It's blacker than black. It's the inverse of light. So they said they, they can't see that darkness here on Earth. It's a different kind of darkness. They also talk about it's like a hopelessness. So here on Earth, it's like we, we see bad. We see evil, but we also see good. We see, we see you know, there's so much good in the world. And, and of course, yes, there is evil. We, we see both sides of the coin, so to speak. And, um, and, and people that go to these heavenly realms or have these heavenly experiences are talking about it's only life and only light. There is no death. There's no pain. There's no sorrow. It's only joy and, and, and peace and all that kind of stuff. So it's like um, darkness is absent. So it's, it's the inverse. It's only light. One of the bigger takeaways is really kind of, you know, what if that's real, um, then what could that mean for my life here on earth? You know, what, what could I do with the time that I have? And, um, I mean, I know all too well, unfortunately, because of loss that, you know, life, uh, can be short. My brother-in-law, he died at 36 years old. And, uh, I mean, I'm 38 years old now, I'm two years past, you know, where, where, where he was. And I just, I mean, I, every day is a blessing that, that I'm here. The takeaway from a lot of these experiences is, especially in their life review, it's like only God has that perspective of being able to see their life and also the lives of the people around them and how small decisions and big decisions actually have a ripple effect on other people's lives. On a day like today, you know, holding the door open for someone or uh, paying it forward and buying a coffee for someone, let's say in, in a line, or even something as small as just, you know, smiling uh, to someone that kind of stuff as small and insignificant as it might seem actually had um, really profound impacts. Cause you don't know where that's going to meet someone on that day. You don't know what kind of day they're having, right? Like, you know, take me for example, again, like, you know, felt, you know, suicidal uh, after losing my, my brother-in-law and, you know, seeing that sign on that, on that bench, I needed that right there in that moment. Right. But it could have also been just someone that just gave me a smile, right. Or just wanted to, you know, be a listening ear, in that moment uh, of going through grief. And 
So we don't know where someone's at um, in that moment and, and the profound impact something even small can have on, on, on others. And that's kind of the takeaway with a lot of these near-death experiences. We actually have had quite a few conversations about it. You know, is this just uh, like a trip, right? Is there something, this ketamine or D, uh, DMT or are there different chemicals and experiences that you can sort of mock or reproduce this NDE experience? And some of the stuff that has, that our experts in the film have revealed that's been super interesting is there are differences. So there, there is a, you know, DMT expert out of New Mexico, Dr. Rick Straussman, who did the only um, controlled uh, DMT experiment, where in that in that research, he discovered that people that went on the DMT trips did actually not have life reviews. And this is one of the key sort of distinctions between a trip, quote unquote, and an actual near-death experience is people are not actually having a full-on life review um, and the out-of-body experiences, remembering them with great detail. I mean, this is one of the sort of compelling strains of evidence in the film, particularly around the case of Pam Reynolds, where people can have these out-of-body experiences and, and remember in great detail things they should not physically be, have been able to see, understand, or know uh, in a given room. Hers was a um, just things that she saw that she should not have been able to see if she was under the knife. So. I would say that there are key distinctions between um, trips and NDE experiences, but I, I, I'd, I'd love to hear Steve's perspective on this too. Was there also didn't seem to be any from his volunteers uh, where they experienced in their DMT trip uh, seeing uh, dead relatives. And so I think that this this film and making the film over the last number of years has has changed the way I see the here and now. And it's given me sort of a renewed hope for today and that my actions, you know, really do matter in eternity. Yeah, for me, it's it's kind of renewed my, my faith uh, in a way that uh, I can think it's like, it's more tangible. For me, I'm, I mean, I'm excited to, to meet Marco again, you know. Stephen Gray and Jason Pamer on their feature film, After Death, out in theaters now. That's it for us this week. This episode was produced by McKenna Hadley-Burke and Armand Egbali. Technical production by Laura Antonelli. The senior producer is Rosie Fernandez. I'm Mary Hines. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.